Welcome. I'm Ross Young, and I'm here with Gmar Cardi, and we are both excited to share with you CISO Tradecraft. CISO Tradecraft is a podcast which discusses how to navigate people, processes, technologies, and environmental issues within the information security industry. The show focuses on mentoring the next generation of cyber leaders take information security skills to an executive level. With that, we are excited to take you to today's show. Well, hello again, and welcome to another episode of CISO Tradecraft. I'm G. Mark Hardy here with Ross Young to share information for you, to help you with your career and potentially move you forward. Hey, don't forget to subscribe if you don't and tell others about the CISO podcast. If you find it helpful to them, I'm sure it'll be helpful to others as well. And as they say, if you don't care who gets the credit, you can get anything done so you can take the credit for referring them to us. Anyway, today I think we've got a rather interesting episode you'll find quite useful. And it's the NSA's top 10 cybersecurity mitigation strategies. And with me to discuss this, of course, as I mentioned, is Ross. And without any ado, let's go ahead and let's get going and see what we've got here. All right. So in case you haven't heard this before, NSA came up with a top 10 list of cybersecurity mitigation. You can think of this like a previous episode that we did on the Australian Essential 8, but this is from NSA, so you know it's going to be good. G. Mark, you want to start us off? Sure. So these mitigations that they've come up with are designed to counter kind of a broad range of exploitation techniques. They're not really focused on the script kiddies, but rather on the most sophisticated actors, the advanced persistent threat, or the APTs. And so these enterprise-level priorities are designed to help us go ahead and reduce the likelihood that these adversary actors are going to be able to, well, do some damage to us. And they're also ranked by effectiveness, much like the critical controls, the CIS control sets are ranked by priority. Here we're going to rank by effectiveness. And so here's kind of the op-tempo. I'm going to go introduce one of the 10 strategies and ask Ross to give us a little bit more detail. I'm going to then look at mapping that to the critical control sets. And then we'll take a look at also mapping that to the areas of the cybersecurity framework. That should give you a pretty solid overview. Number one on the NSA's top 10 cybersecurity mitigation strategies is update and upgrade your software immediately. Hey, what are we talking about here? What we're talking about here is making sure we update all software, the OS, the middleware, the application layer, update it. Because if you think about it, attackers are going to do bad things to your sites. They're going to start out by scanning things. And if you have known vulnerabilities that are critical, you are essentially in the danger zone right? And attackers have a time that they start scanning from when vulnerabilities are easily exploited. So if someone were to look on exploits, DB, or, or some of the other popular tools where you can go and find things and just see, hey, what did Met Metasploit just add as a new vulnerability? Well, now let me go in Shodan and just see who in the world has that vulnerability. Well, that becomes a pretty nasty day if you end up in that danger zone list. So when we think about upgrading, there's a couple of things we have to think about as an organization. I, I would say the first is, what is your patch timeline, right? Is it 30 days? Is it 90 days? You know, where do you draw the line? And is that realistic from where you're seeing threat intelligence data from? 
if the threat intelligence data you're seeing says the average time to exploit is 30 days and your patch timeline is 90 days for internet facing criticals, well, there is a big gap there and you're going to learn some painful lessons through that. So think about where your patch policy exists. Think about what does it take so that your organization can get to a place to upgrading software. And, and, and here's, here's where I really want people to focus on. The bare minimum that people think about is, okay, let me just look for software for vulnerabilities. But we've mentioned it on the show previously, that's kind of not a great scenario because here's the thing. Attackers are, are more sophisticated than just looking for software that has CVEs. They're looking for software that's not patched in a very, very long time. And just because this software doesn't have uh, a CVE doesn't mean the developer itself hasn't made 10 version releases since then where they did all these bug fixes. So are you keeping up with the latest version of the software or the latest version minus one that's, that's stable? Because if you're not, then you have let's say, vulnerabilities from the custom developer, the owner of the application that you're not patching to as well. So think about ways you can really update your software. Jimar? Yeah, and, and you've raised a couple of good points there, particularly on your patching, because back in the military, we used to talk about something called an OODA loop, O-O-D-A, observe, orient, decide, and act. It was from Colonel John Boyd back in the 50s. And the idea was, is that it was initially discussed as a way to help fighter pilots understand that if you could observe, orient, decide, and act, the OODA loop, if you could complete that faster than your adversary, you're more likely to win in air-to-air -air combat. Well, in the same way, if we have a long patch cycle and we're going to get around to it, and these state actors or advanced actors are able to move a lot faster, they're inside our OODA loop, to use that type of a terminology. Now, recently, I taught a course with U.S. Army Cyber Command. We were discussing about patching and things like that. And they told me, well, sir, our patch cycle is, well, I'm not going to tell you on a broadcast, but suffice it to say that you know, my concern as a senior military officer would be, are we patching fast enough, understanding that sometimes patches break things? The mapping of this NSA Control 1 or Mitigation Strategy 1 is critical security control 2 inventory of authorized and unauthorized software. And if we take a look at cisecurity.org and look at the current version of the controls, right now they're version 7.1, but I'm told version 8 is imminent, is a software inventory tool that we use to track and manage and keep things up to date is essential. Don't allow attackers inside your loop. Don't allow them to go ahead and take advantage of something that man, I could have patched that, but I didn't. Shame on you if that happens. And lastly, the mapping for that one into this cybersecurity framework are identify and protect. Number two, any other thoughts on that, Ross? Are we ready to roll on? Let's roll on. Let's roll. Okay, number two, defend privileges and accounts. Okay, what do we mean by that? So what do we mean by that is there's basic user accounts and there's admin credentials. Admin credentials can install software. And if you can install software, you can install malware, you can install rootkits, you can install Bitcoin miners and all the things that the bad guys want to put on your system. 
So what we need to do is really limit those accounts to only the folks who need them. And, and let's think about what we can do. We can install privilege access management software known as a PAM solution to automate credentials. And, and think about it this way. Nobody can just install anything on, on their machines, even if they are developers. They have to get a token or a one-time code that they would enter into the PAM solution, which gives them pseudo access to install for X amount of time, right? It's a really good way to, to limit all the people who would have access and, and, and actually scale that. What we're also talking about here is how do we make sure we're not exposing these things in GitHub and other source code because that's just all sorts of wrong as well, right? And, and as we think about these privilege and accounts, how do we actually take some security best practices and expire things? When's the last time you've gone through your active directory to say, hey, what about these admin accounts that haven't logged in in a quarter? Do we remove those from our environment? Because if not, they're just there, right? The more we can remove all of these privileges, the harder we make it for bad guys to steal those credentials, to brute force those weak passwords, because they're just not there. And on the other thing that I would say, we're also seeing more honeypot type stuff that says, let's create some fake privilege accounts. And then if anybody uses those, gotcha, bad guys, you know, so we kind of turn the tables a little bit. Well, of course, I wouldn't want to create a, a, a real privilege account they stumble into. It's like, okay, yeah, we just gave away the keys. But when you think about it, though, so for example, Microsoft Azure, uh, if you're up there, they recommend no more than five domain admin accounts for a, a tenant. And as a result, which you might want to look around and say, hey, perhaps we have even more of them. Well, that's probably. Take a look also from the perspective of your logins from your administrators. Are they required to use multi-factor authentication? If not, shame on you. And if you can't do MFA, then require unique passwords for privileged accounts on every single device. Remember Mimikatz, the ability, the tool uh, that could be used to scrape a little bit of memory. And that's really one of the great attack vectors for both pen tests as intruders is if somebody had logged into a machine using a domain admin account to do some work, that password may still be up in memory. But if it's a unique password for every machine, I know, pain in the butt, but it doesn't provide any lateral movement for the bad guys. They can't use it anywhere else. Also make sure that you do not use admin accounts for anything else. Don't use it for email. Don't use it for web browsing. If you have an email account and it has an associated privilege with it, that's a bad practice. Why? I was going through our logs the other day for one of my clients and found out that uh, some of our senior executives are very popular targets. They're they must travel at the close to the speed of light because they're all over the world very, very rapidly trying to get into systems. Well, one of the things I noticed is one of our domain admin accounts was on the list of things trying to be poked into. Well, they can't get in. We got MFA. However, what was the problem? The CISO ahead of me had set up a domain admin account and it was associated with an email account that was publicly used to sign up for mailing lists. It got compromised somehow and got added to the list of brute force credentials. That came off the list. So critical security control for control use of admin privileges, looking at the cybersecurity framework also identify and protect. 
Number three on our list of 10 cybersecurity mitigation strategies from the NSA is to enforce signed software execution policies. What do we mean by that, Ross? Well, what we mean is how do we have software where we actually know where it came from, right? Think of it as a PKI certificate that says this was signed by the developer and released by them, so we know it came from them. Right. This is no different than when you go to a website and you have the the little security lock that says TLS 1.2, and we know it came from this particular site. And and what this allows us to know is we're not having someone in the middle who can change things out. And, and the classic example of this was there was this uh, TLS attack uh, against Sparkle, and and you probably never heard of this, but this is one of the coolest hacks that that I really enjoyed learning about. Basically, what happened is uh, hackers could sit on a network. They could run a man-in-the-middle fr- uh, framework, which would say, let me inject something in the middle. And if they saw people going to websites and they were using unencrypted traffic, HTTP traffic, then they could say, oh, let me see what file you're looking at and let me switch it with a malicious file. And, oh, if you were going to install a piece of software, here's the executable I think you meant to install. And, and you could have a fully patched MacBook Pro or Windows desktop. Didn't matter because you were then going to, you know, install that executable that you thought came from this trusted vendor. But because it came through an HTTP protocol or something like that, now they've switched it. And if you don't have a way to verify the hash of the software that came through, you know, or, or maybe it's Docker, right? You're, you're looking at these Docker containers coming through and you're not verifying those came through there's a lot of chance somebody can enter your supply chain and bad things happen. Solar winds, classic example of bad things coming in. Now that one was signed, but many malicious things are not. So take heads up on this low hanging fruit to protecting your software supply chain. Yeah. And as you pointed out with solar winds, the difficulty was when somebody steals the key signing certificate and can go ahead and sign everybody else's uh, application, that's a problem. And supply chain security, I think I'm going to do an episode on that. I think we ought to do that, Ross. That's, that's, that's a big deal, protecting our supply chain. But the signed software execution policies sort of kind of maybe maps to critical control nine on limitation and control of network ports. But really, we're more talking not so much about the communications as we are to make sure that everything is set up where we require executables to be signed. And from time to time, you can go ahead and... If you're really concerned from a supply chain perspective, maybe you go talk to that uh, vendor and say, have you come up with something? Is this really yours? Yeah. And one other good example is macros. We talked a little bit about that before, but when people send you Word documents, you can actually put software execution policies in play that say, don't allow external macros to run in your environment. Only allow them when they came from your internal environment. Those are really good tips to, to help it enforce. Right. And so enforcing signed software execution policies help us with both protect and, of course, as well as detect. Spot something's up. Let's move on to strategy number four. Exercise a system recovery plan. That sounds rather important. Ross, why does NSA think this is so important? Well, at the end of the day, so many organizations are suffering ransomware, and and that's a bad place to be. But wouldn't you like to only have lost two days of data instead of all of your data? I know I would. And so 
you need to have good disaster recovery plans. You need to have good business continuity plans. And we lump these things under a system recovery plan umbrella. And so what we need to think about is a couple of things. One, has the business articulated how long they can go without this system being up, right? So imagine they're willing to go two days with this key system being down because they can go to manual paper. But after that, it's going to suck doing month-end close, and they're not going to be able to do it. And so they want that system up. So you got two days to restore from backup. Did you put some tests in there where you said, these are my critical applications, and we've actually done a full DR test and made sure these applications can come up in two days? Well, maybe you actually did the test and found out you didn't have enough storage or your bandwidth was too small. It actually took five days. Well, now you need to be able to go back to the business owner and say, these are some of the risks that we have with our current infrastructure setup. We need X capabilities. We need more bandwidth or whatever you need to make that a reality. Or is that something you already have the budget to do? So as you start to go down those types of discussions, then we can really bring that back to understanding how we allow the business to succeed when bad things happen. And what we find then is that a lot of times we've thought that good solid backups are an antidote or at least a countermeasure for ransomware, but just something to keep in mind. And we're going to be doing an episode on ransomware soon as well, because that's a big deal. Our backups are engineered to protect against failure, not to protect against malice. And therefore, leaving things connected all the time, just in case something breaks, sounds like a great idea. But in the world of ransomware, the problem is, is that it could pull down all of your backups and encrypt those as well. We want to have a solid system recovery plan, make sure things are backed up. Critical control number 10, data recovery capabilities. Backing your data up on a regular basis and testing it is a big deal. And this gives us protection in the identify, respond, and recover elements of the critical security controls. Let's go on with strategy number five. Actively manage systems and configurations. Okay, what are we talking about here, Ross? Okay, what we're talking about is making sure your default settings are not the insecure settings. Right. We talked about how we're going to patch already. The next thing is how do you make sure that you don't have all the default passwords on your network routers that are easily Googleable, right? So we need to go in and, and look for things. And there's two pieces of, of things that are very common. One is a, a CIS uh, benchmark, and you'll see there are just tons and tons of different, let's say, configuration guides you can go and look up. And it'll say, hey, for a Windows server that looks like this, here's the 500 settings you need to configure your service to. You also see uh, DOD has something called the Secure Technical Implement Implementation Guidelines, or STIGs, that do the same thing. Basically, what you want to know is, are the defaults good in my application? And if they're not, how do I check against that? How do I have a monthly check to know if my public-facing web applications are vulnerable to things because I haven't turned these security settings on? Yeah, and if we take a look at some of the concepts that come out of the critical controls, control number five, secure configuration for hardware and software on mobile devices, laptops, workstations, and servers, basically having master images or templates 
that we know are trustworthy and you keep them offline so that nobody can go ahead and mess with them. Having that as a known baseline is going to reduce your tax surface because in the event that you're either using some sort of tool like a file integrity monitoring or tripwire or whatever, and you notice that something has happened with your config that you don't want, you can roll that back. Now, a lot of times we have to decide what's our strategy and it gets into a lot more detail in terms of do we just simply try to roll back something? Do we try to make a modification? Or do we just replace wholesale that entire system? Because when we've been building our infrastructure as code environment where everything's the same anyway, all the data is stored up in the cloud, et cetera. Regardless of what strategy you have or how, what hardware management system you have, you want to make sure that you can go have a solid inventory of your devices, remove those things that aren't necessary from your enterprise and move from that known baseline that you've got stored securely. And that gives us capabilities in the cybersecurity framework for both identify and protect. All right, we're on the backside of the top 10, looking at number six. Number six strategy, continuously hunt for network intrusions. All right, what are we talking about here? Okay, what we're talking about here is traditional defenses become traditionally not sucky because bad guys are going to try to overcome those, right? They're going to look for ways in your network that you're not thinking about. And, and you can think about how is the attack changing, right? So, you know, historically people would have just went and scanned your website. Okay. You know, we got really good at patching. Well, then they started going after configurations, uh, misconfigurations of your website. Okay. Now we're checking against those misconfigurations. All right. Now they're phishing your employees. Okay. Now we're going to do phishing training. Now they're phishing your employees in LinkedIn. Oh, now we got to teach people that they're a target on LinkedIn as well. So it, it's about always knowing how the bad guys are targeting your organization through listening to some of this threat intelligence information, and then looking for things within your logs, looking for things in your security information and event management or SIM products, looking through your endpoint detection and response solutions, and all of these different things that put together what are known as anomalous behavior activities. These are things that are abnormal. Johnny always does 10 megs of, of bandwidth up or down, and now we're seeing Johnny do a gig of, of, of bandwidth. Well, something's wrong. What's going on here? What's looking into this? Instead of just looking for, hey, my, mal my antivirus just detected this one bad thing that it knows about. Well, if you're only looking for known bad things, you're going to be missing all the unknown things. And this is what the attackers are doing, right? They're taking their malware. They're going to places like VirusTotal, seeing if, if any of the antiviruses can catch their tools. And if they can't, well, now they know they're golden to start putting their tools on your network. And your antiviruses are going to miss those. But the SIMs, the EDRs, the other tools that are looking for the anomaly behavior is where you have to focus. And what you correct, Ross, we really need layered defenses. We can't simply defend on one single magic tool that's going to catch everything. Remember, the whole purpose of these strategies here are to help us defend against advanced persistent threats, well-funded actors, often but not always nation states. If we take a look at the critical controls and things that could support this, number eight, 
malware defenses, making sure that we have centrally managed tools to continuously monitor and defend our systems and conduct these scans even when uh, media is added to make sure. Now, to a certain extent, in network intrusions, we find out that sometimes they come in through TCP IP packet coming through there, and sometimes they take a hitch ride on sneaker net and they get inserted through devices. But also, part of being able to continuously hunt for the network intrusions is to try to, well, let's do our own hunts. And you can do that with critical control number 20, pen testing teams or penetration tests and red team exercises. Now, what's rather interesting is that pen tests are kind of the fun, sexy red team, let's go go ahead and break stuff. But if you remember the critical controls are in priority order, and they're number 20 out of 20, suggesting that pen tests, sorry, red teamers, are not where you start, it's where you end. It suggests that we've already got, as you had said, Ross, the SIMs, the EDRs, the detection mechanisms already set up. And then we can go through and say, hey, are all these defenses in place? If we do that effectively, we can both detect and respond as well as recover when we're looking at the cybersecurity framework. Strategy number seven, leverage modern hardware security features. Hmm, that sounds interesting because most of what we're talking about has been software lately, but what can you do with leveraging modern hardware security features? So there's things that computers have started putting in, like secure boot processes, a unified extensible firmware interface, a trusted platform module or TPM, and hardware virtualization. Don't get too wrapped around this, but, but think of it this way. If you're not using a modern device, you're going to be vulnerable to legacy attacks. And, and the easiest thing to think about is, let's say little Bobby the intern goes and he leaves his corporate laptop inside his Uber on his drive to work. No, right? it never, never happened. <laughs> yeah. Do you at least have something like BitLocker encryption on that laptop so that when it gets stolen, it's not just, okay, let's, let's get into the laptop with a couple passwords, right? We got to have something there. And, and, and here's what the bad guys have really been able to figure out, that if I can put something into the bootloader, then you can refresh the operating system all the time. And guess what? My malware is still coming back, right? So the the more modern uh, comp companies that build hardware have saying, okay, how do I really protect all of this boot software? And 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 just think about it this way: on your Windows laptop or your MacBook, do you actually have a BIOS password before you can even log into Windows? Because if you can't, can somebody change your BIOS to boot off a thumb drive or a CD drive? and then start trying to go after things. It's another way you can protect your, your, your piece of equipment. And using these things is something that really reduces critical data and user credentials being lost to threat actors. And that's an excellent point. And also consider in terms of hardware, if you have some of your folks who are doing international travel, there are some places where uh, we don't always consider that uh, it's a safe place for hardware. Well, what do I mean by that? Under international law and convention, every nation has the right to protect their borders, which includes electronics coming through airports, could include carry-on bags. And if a foreign intelligence service, since we're saying APT, so we'll use that as sort of an example, 
gets an alert that, hey, maybe you've got access or your representative for your organization has all this intellectual property on the hard drive. Maybe you're going over there to set up a factory. You're going to go ahead and have discussions on the like. Uh, they are perfectly within their right under law to say, hey, you know, would you like to come this way? Would you be so kind as to uh, provide your boot up password and things such as that? And if you say no, or I want my Fourth Amendment rights, you don't get those over overseas and you end up in kind of a tough situation. So although it's slightly out of scope for being able to look at leveraging the modern hardware security features, it is helpful once you arrive. Make sure people understand that their equipment may be at risk. And the more layers of hardware protection you have, the better you are making it more and more difficult for attackers to tamper with devices. And if they steal it, the worst you got to do is replace the hardware. You don't have any losses because there's a lot of breach notification laws out there, but there's not a hardware loss notification law. Critical control number five, secure configurations for hardware and software would apply. And being able to leverage these features helps us out with both identify and protect. Moving on to strategy number eight, segment your networks and deploy application-aware defenses. Sounds great. What are we talking about? Okay, we're talking about putting critical things in critical locations, keeping your public-facing pieces from your internal facing pieces and really using this whole zero trust strategy. And we had a prior episode on that. So please take a look if you hadn't had a, a chance. And what we need to understand is application aware defenses. And, and let me give you an example of what that means. For the longest time, the most common way to exfil data out of any company was to send it over DNS traffic. DNS is normally what you use to say, translate this IP address to a, a website name or URL mm -hmm. or, or vice versa. But if you set up your own DNS server, you can actually have them, you know, sending traffic to you and use that as a way to exfil bulk data out of a company, right? And that would be really bad because everybody opens this port open just like 443 and port 80, right? But do you have anything in your defenses that look at the traffic to say, hey, this doesn't really look like DNS traffic. This looks like you're sending out my critical data. Hey, this is no bueno, right? We need to stop this immediately, right? So do we have things in our networks that actually look for a protocol to make sure that protocol is what we're expecting it to look like, or is it just impersonating that port and protocol? Yeah, and if you look at the idea of using port 53 versus, for example, DNS over TLS, where you go out on 443, it helps if you can lock everybody down to a known DNS server. If we just we kind of fixate on that, and I've got folks who are like, man, that's the way you get out. That's the way you get out. And I've been reviewing uh, various documents. Say, There's a lot of other ways to exfiltrate stuff, too. If, you, if you're really patient, you can exfil data two bytes at a time in a checksum in a header. But also included in this strategy eight is the segmentation of our networks. And that's really important. A flat network where everybody can talk to everybody at layer two by just going MAC address to MAC address is incredibly effective and efficient and fast and horribly vulnerable. The analogy I give people is they say, if you want to set up a flat network, and by the way, that might describe Saudi Aramco's network, prior to Shamoon. 
30,000 machines. They could all pretty much talk directly to each other. Spectacularly efficient, but horribly vulnerable. Think about packing 30,000 people into a stadium at close quarters and introducing somebody with COVID. You're going to have a mass spreader event, and it's exactly what can happen. By segmenting your networks, to go back to my old Navy background, it's like putting in watertight compartments in your ship. You might get water comes into one compartment, but it's not going to get throughout the rest of the ship. Well, how do you move around? Well, humans now don't go ahead and undog a hatch, walk through and close the hatch again. Water doesn't know how to do that. And so using the physical analogy of saying entities we want, and for the Navy ship, sailors, and things we don't want, wall of water, we can go ahead and limit that with network segmentation. We get some protection in there in critical control 11 and 12. 11 for secure configuration for network devices, including routers and switches, as well as control 12 boundary defense, looking at what's going on. And again, locking down the communications over ports that you should not be using is a very useful thing. Although for the most part, most of the bad guys today have figured out, hey, let's just do our command and control over 443. You'll never block that. Uh, but of course, we do have tools that let you say, hmm, it's a protocol mismatch. It is encrypted, but it doesn't look like TLS to me. But that's outside the scope of what we're looking at here. But number eight, segmenting our network and deploying application where defenses gives us protection and detection in the cybersecurity framework. Moving on to number nine, sound like Casey Kasem here, right? Neil, to the top 10. Integrating threat reputation services. Ross, what can we do to integrate threat reputation services? What are we talking about here? Okay, so we, we've mentioned threat intelligence services where you're reading to see what's happening in the news. But a threat reputation service looks at where the bad guys are coming from. What are their DNS servers? What are their IP addresses? What are their known email addresses? Because 99 times out of 100, you're probably not the first person they've targeted right? They've targeted you and 10,000 other people in a spear phishing campaign. They're targeting, you know, a lot of different banks. And so if you have your WAF blocking things on the front end and says, hey, these are known IP addresses from bad guys, you can actually limit most of the vulner most of the attackers coming in and, and and really protect your application. So these reputation of services which uh, assist in the detection and prevention of malicious of malicious events are really stopping known threats. And this is a significant way to really lower your attack surface on the internet. Yeah. Now for threat reputation services, what they're basically saying is that hey, this is kind of been reported in the past. It's sometimes used an email to go ahead and identify spammers. And one of the problems you might have is that if you share an email server because you're a smaller company and therefore your email is going out by, let's say, a hosting company, and therefore your IP address is also used by 200 other companies, one of those gets in spam house or whatever and says, hey, this is a source of bad, then you're unfortunately also marked as a source of bad. Your threat reputation services will also help in terms of being able to understand not just DNSs, but URLs. We can use that, for example, a tool like Cisco Umbrella, which will say, hmm, you made a DNS request to a known command and control site for ransomware. Probably no. 
or you've tried to go someplace you should not. And another example of this is your proxy servers, right? Folks are always going to visit all sorts of websites in your company and, and on the open internet. And if you have a proxy service that's getting reputation information with, hey, the following sites are the newest porn sites and we're going to block them. Or they're the malicious, you know, uh, let's say gambling sites where they're actually throwing malware and adware onto your computers. This type of threat reputation that's being blocked through proxies can be another effective way to help regulate your environment. Right. And we get a lot more use in terms of ideas and things like that, looking at critical security control number seven, email and web browser protections, which allows us to go ahead and not only limit where you're going to, either in terms of DNS or URLs, but also going ahead and looking at our email. And I'm pretty sure at some point we've talked about ways we can protect our email with DMARC and SPF and DKIM. Uh, and though, check out our episode, trying to remember the name of which, which one that was, uh, that we get into some of the implementation details so that you can really up your defenses with regard to spotting things before they ever get to your humans. And if they do get to your people, you can easily flag them and label them as saying, warning, this is a suspicious sender, or it may not be the entity that you said it was. Proceed carefully. And this gives us protection and detection in the cybersecurity framework. Number 10, transition to multi-factor authentication, or MFA. It's uh, more than just an acronym. It needs to really become a way of life. Ross, what are we talking about here when we transition to MFA? So what we're talking about here is folks using your website to log in with user and name and password also needing a second thing to authenticate. This could be a text to their phone. This could be logging into some type of authenticator app where they typically provide a six-digit number code in response. This is really good because passwords can be brute force. Passwords can be lost or stolen. But a dynamic code that is changing every 30 seconds is really hard for folks to, to get, right? It, it's a little bit harder to, to brute force, and it provides something that's really low cost to secure your organization. Now, one pro tip, don't just think about this on user authentication. Also think about this on administrator authentication. When your admins log into servers through SSH, do you also require an MFA challenge? There's free Linux tools that do it. It's a huge value add. So when your SSH keys get kicked, uh, get logged in some public GitHub repo, yeah, that sucks. You got to change the SSH key, but you're still not vulnerable because they don't have your MFA challenge. What a great idea, right? So look for ways to implement multi-factor authentication wherever you can. And, and Ross, you're spot on on that one. As I said, I kind of get amused when I see all the places in, uh, let's say, Eastern Asia, we'll limit it to that, that uh, my executives travel to and they zap around kind of like a Star Trek transporter from location to location. And why? It turns out those attempts to log in in the emails are just part of maybe multiple campaigns or just kind of a background noise. None of them ever get in. But if someone were to be able to guess a password, what's going to happen? My users are going to get an alert on their phone saying, hey, approve or deny your most recent attempt to go in. And they're sitting there at the dinner table. They're like, um, no. 
and they give me a call and they go ahead and we look at it. And that's a possibility that could happen there. Quick little war story about that when you go back kind of the earliest multi-factor authentication, the secure ID. And that goes back to a company called Security Dynamics up in Boston. I remember back in the late 80s going through with the company and looking at their product and their their code and uh, did a code review. And I said, I think you guys are onto something. Well, of course, they've sold hundreds of millions of dollars worth, if not billions. But here's the fun thing. Originally, this was set up to run on mainframes. And the way it works is it synchronizes the clock on the mainframe with, if you will, the clock at the device that's out in the field. So when you enter in your field that was right there in your multi-factor authentication device, it pairs it up using the same seed, the same starting seed to come produce the value. Well, one of their early customers went ahead and said, hmm, it's daylight savings time. We're third shift, spring ahead. So they set all the system clocks ahead one hour and immediately got locked out because essentially they were running one year in the future, one, one hour in the future, and nobody could get into their systems and they had to go ahead and come up with a special way of creating a token with a different seed that was speeded up with a different clock just to get them in. Shortly thereafter, they started having their own ACE server, which was a way to get around that. So it's always like to have a little bit of blast from the past or some of these old stories. But transitioning to multi-factor authentication, definitely giving us things such as secure configuration and boundary defense, critical controls 11 and 12, giving us protection in identify and protect. All right. So run the top 10. You want to go, want to review the list? Want me to review the list? Let's make sure that we reinforce this. Yeah, so we've we've talked about the NSA top 10 cybersecurity mitigation strategies. There'll be a link to the the wonderful content within the the show notes. So, what are they? Update and upgrade software immediately, defend your privileges and accounts, enforce signed sec- software execution policies, exercise a system recovery plan, actively manage systems and configurations, continuously hunt for network intrusions, leverage modern hardware security features, segment network and deploy application adware defenses, integrate threat reputation services, and last but not least, transition to multi-factor authentication. Exactly. I mean, this is kind of motherhood and apple pie. And it doesn't necessarily apply merely to federal agencies. This is for anybody out there. And even if you don't think that you're a target for an advanced persistent threat, you might be a relay. You might be a stepping stone that the attackers could use to get into a juicier, more important target. So become part of a secure ecosystem. Take advantage of the knowledge, of the recommendations, the wisdom, and the tools that are out there that allow you to better secure your enterprise. And in doing so, you become a much more effective in your role as a security professional. And it's an excellent piece of tradecraft in your journey to become a chief information security officer. And if you're already there, to become an even better one. Well, thank you for listening to this episode of CISO Tradecraft. Once again, please like, subscribe, and share our content. We love having listeners talk about how it's helping their lives. You know, there's ways you can talk about the episode on LinkedIn. We have uh, Podbean, which is our podcast provider. There's a way to do con- comments in there as well. Or you can just send us a note on our CISO Tradecraft website. 
But thank you once again, and we look forward to sharing with you more excellent content coming forward. Until next time, stay safe.